Matthew 6, let's begin in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life, Jesus asked, more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Y'all want to participate in this, or you want me to just give you a 45-minute lecture? Want to participate? Raise your hand if you're prepared to confess publicly that you're a bit of a worrier. Wow, we have an awesome assembly, because there's only like a third of us that struggle. Um, There's different layers of worry. Um, Some people seem to be completely immune from it. I envy those people. I like to not call it worry. I like to call it, I'm just staying on top of things. I like to call it, you know, I'm keeping my eye on a few things. I like to call it responsibility, forward thinking, thinking ahead, and so on and so on, yeah? And so we, we, we have these different ways of not really wanting to call worry, worry. And sometimes it's a situational thing. We don't know the outcome of something and we're excited and and we're wondering how it's going to be. And it's not necessarily a dread that it's not going to happen, but it's a, oh, I think it might happen, but I don't know if it's going to happen. I'm a little kind of this way and that way about it. And it can be more of just like an unsettled spirit. And at other times, and this is no laughing matter, it can be so unhealthy that it results in a clinical paranoia where people become phobic over certain things in life. And so, I'll be honest with you, as, a, as a, the last year of my, my life prior to coming to Jesus Christ, I was in that last category. I was phobic. I was paranoid. I literally thought that everybody was after me. Somebody said, Jeff, you're being paranoid. I said, I'm not paranoid. I know they're after me. I know they're coming after me. It's like, no, that's paranoia. And fortunately, Jesus broke the chains off of me in that when he saved me. But here's the deal. Um, If you were raised by a worrier, it probably got into you somewhere, and there's deliverance for it. There's freedom from it. Jesus does not want us worrying, and the hardcore issue about it is that worry at its its molecular level, Jesus is even going to say this, it's just an issue of us having a less than fully formed faith muscle. 
worry is indicative of some area where we're struggling to trust the Lord. Before just breaking down the text, let me say this. Some people that um, worry in one area are immune from worries in other areas that other people worry about. What's funny is my wife doesn't have a worrying bone in her body, um, but she gets nervous in conflict and trouble and kind of explosive stuff. Me, I'll worry about the tiny things, but when bombs are going off, I'm like, yeah! What's God going to do? So it's, it's strange. It's just kind of ironic that some of us will, will really struggle in an area where, you know, 85% of the rest of Christians don't struggle. And then in that other area where people want to duck and run, you're like, bring it on. Let's see what happens. The reality is I want to be free from all elements of worry. And one of the benefits of doing life together as a community is that we can find... Um, deep, deep help in this issue if we're not trying to do it alone. There should be no shame in this room tonight if you find through this passage that you're getting convicted. The whole message is Jesus exposing the issue of worry, helping us to see that it's not, it's not reasonable in the kingdom to live in worry, and then he's actually going to tell us how we can help ourselves permanently exit worry. And it don't wait on, a, you know, what I call the Holy Ghost dose. Don't wait on God just to, and all of a sudden it's yanked out of you and you never, you never struggle with it. Typically, if you're an adult and you struggle with worry, Jesus will shepherd you out of it. He'll shepherd you out of it, but you have to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so let's just go through these seven or eight verses and, and let's let the master talk to us about this. And verse 25 is just very simple. Jesus, remember, he's still preaching. A, 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 this is his longest sermon, and he invites his followers to exit worry. He's actually building an off-ramp to get off the highway of worry, and he gives us, first of all, this command. Now, it is a command. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. So the habitual worrier says, great. Now I've got to worry about my worrying because Jesus said I shouldn't worry. And that's not what he's trying to do there. It's an invitation. He's trying to alert us to uh, an opportunity to escape something that none of us like, and it's never profitable. Worry does not add anything to us. It almost always takes something from us. And Jesus is saying to us, I want to tell you that worry is not part of the script that I offer my people. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual fruit. It's, it's not from him. And so worry is 100% of the time either born in our flesh or comes from some form of warfare, 100% of the time. It is never from the Lord. Now, we're not talking about your, your, your fight or flight response when there's danger. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the mind that obsesses over things beyond its control and wonders and worries over what the outcome might be and wants to be able to manipulate and steer it, but can't, and because he or she can't control it, worry sets in. It's a reflex in a heart that is not fully trusting yet. And so Jesus gives this command. He says, don't be anxious about what? About your life. He covers everything in two words, your life. He says, don't, don't approach your own life with um, an anxious outlook, an inner unsettledness, a fear of what's next. He's just giving us a command. 
he says, don't do that. Now, let me tell you immediately what protests might arise. But I can't help it. That's the way I feel. Eh. That is an illegal response to this command. It's an illegal move in the kingdom to say, I can't help it, it's the way I feel. Jesus is not saying, oh, okay, if you feel that way, then go on, get your fill of worry. What he's going to teach is the feeling is sourced in something illegitimate. So we're actually being called here in this passage and in other places in the Word to dethrone our emotions instead of allowing them to be the engine that drives the train of our life. We take our emotions and we put them, if necessary, as the caboose. And we let our faith and his promises be the engine of our life. So he is going to give us a clarification. And this is um, probably not areas that we specifically worry over in an industrialized, prosperous, Western 21st century culture. But it was very crucial for his original audience. He says, this clarification is this. He says, don't be anxious about your life, specifically what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, here's what he's saying here. You've got to remember, they're all sitting on the hillside. The vast majority of his original audience would be impoverished. They are hand-to-mouth daily. When Jesus taught them to pray, give us this day our daily bread, it wasn't because it sounded cool in a Hallmark card. He's saying to them, learn to trust the Father daily for the food you need for that day. And, of course, in an impoverished society, there would be some that would wonder, will there be enough tomorrow? Yes, we had enough today, but what if, what if the rains don't come and therefore the crops don't come? And if the crops don't come, what are the livestock going to eat? And if the livestock don't eat, where are we going to get our milk? Where are we going to get our eggs? Where are we going to get our meat? And do you see how it can happen automatically? What are they doing? They're forecasting what-ifs. And that is the doom, that's the death now to our sense of peace and our sense of, of abiding in Jesus in serenity. Why? Because we're leaping forward into a time and a scenario that hasn't even materialized yet, and we're trying to control today mentally what we can't control volitionally with our will or with our hands. We're trying to control mentally what hasn't even arrived yet. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I don't want you to worry about having enough food tomorrow or having anything to drink tomorrow. And then he adds this, or, or about your body, what you will put on. He's, he's literally talking about clothes there, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. So here's the way the human brain can work, the mind, the psyche, whatever you want to call it. There's a certain type of individual. It's usually a learned pattern of behavior. It can, I do believe, be passed down both genetically to a certain extent, but definitely spiritually coming through family lines and, and um, your family history. But it's usually a learned behavior. Sometimes it is a reaction to perhaps not having enough when you were a child, or perhaps watching as a child your parents flip out over whether or not they were going to be able to pay the bills or get this taken care of. And you learn that when there is an unknown, your job, your reflex is to obsess over it. And we can learn those things, but here's the good news. You can unlearn it. You're trained into it. You can actually be spiritually shepherded out of it. But those are the basics of life. This is what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I want you to know I'm going to give you everything you need. Now, I can tell you this, there's people in the room that will struggle with that. And the main reason is because 
we're not quite clear on what constitutes a need versus what constitutes a luxury or a want. And what's happened in our prosperous society, you've got these people that were impoverished and they're literally saying, I don't know if I'm going to have what I need tomorrow. And Jesus is saying, don't even give it a second thought. And what we do is we're going to say, we say, we have learned to feel like we need everything that we have available. And we are afraid that tomorrow everything that, quite frankly, are luxuries, but we've come to that place where we feel like they're needs. And so, God forbid, what if our standard of living were to drop? What if we had to downsize? What if instead of the new Cadillac, you had to buy a 10-year-old Kia? And we would actually obsess over those things and potentially worry over those things. And what Jesus is saying is, the Cadillac's not a need. For that matter, the Kia is not a need. But I'm going to promise you, you never have to wonder if you'll have what you need to live the life that I've assigned to you. I'm going to give you a big statement, and I'm going to move on. Jesus Christ promises that the Father will provide every single thing you need every single day of your Christian walk, everything you need every day in order to live the life that he has assigned for you. You will always have it. That is a promise from the word of God. Paul would unpack this later when writing to Timothy. He's telling Timothy how to pastor the people that were, were following Timothy there in Ephesus. And he says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, come on, 21st century American Christian, Western Christian, we don't believe that. Or maybe we acknowledge it's true, but we don't really live it. Food and clothing, and that's it? Are you still going to shout? Are you still going to praise? Are you still going to pray? Are you still going to serve? Are you still going to worship? Is he still good? It, it, listen, if you've got 25-year-old carpet in your house and you got brown patches from where the dog did his business and you got a, a lime green refrigerator from 1989 that somehow is still working, is he still good? If you're eating ramen noodles like I did for four years of my single life while your buddies are eating at Cabernet Steakhouse, is he still worthy? Of course he is. And we know that, but listen, I'm telling you, we, we have to retrain ourselves to just look up to heaven and say, you have given me everything I need today. Why is my heart anxious or grumbling or envious? Are dissatisfied well so Jesus moves on from the clarification he just gives us something to consider he gives us a consideration he says is not your life more than food and it's not your body more than clothing he's saying isn't there more to our relationship than these physical things and so we have to we really have to go there because we're a very materialistic culture and if you've been born or raised in this culture, if you've been in it a while, that stuff gets on you. And, and quite honestly, a little bit of it, hopefully just a little, gets in us. And we start viewing life through the lens of what, what we should have or what we should reasonably expect. And Jesus is just calling his disciples, people of the kingdom, and he's saying, aren't there actually more lasting things than physical things? If you're going to obsess over something... Isn't there something better to obsess over than the clothing, the food, 
and the water? There's more lasting things than that. Aren't there more rewarding things than physical things? <laughs> Sorry, that was a preacher grunt there, but the, the, the immediacy of the reward, reward of tangible material things, that's a strong pull. I was literally, I had to run an errand today, and I had a meeting back here, and I had to get back from when I was going from meeting to meeting, and I drove by the mall, and I don't know what it was. It must have been a demon. I don't know what it was. I felt this impulse to stop, go into Macy's, and see if I could find a shirt. I'm going to promise you something. I have at least a dozen shirts hanging in my office over at, at, the, at the church office, and I thought to myself, I, I need a shirt. I need a shirt for Wednesday night. I'm feeling good. I'd like to have a new shirt tonight. And all of this is happening in like 10 seconds. And all of, I don't know why I'm confessing my sins to y'all, but just bear with me. Don't judge me. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, man, I, I need that shirt. I don't even know what, what shirt it was. And I'm thinking, I, I really, I don't think I can go on unless I go to Macy's and get a shirt. You know what saved me? There were too many people in the left-hand turn lane, and I didn't want to wait in traffic. I would love to tell you, but Jesus moved in, and the Holy Spirit swept into the car, cast out the demon, and I said, I need no shirt, all I need is you. But that would be lying. It was just the fact that there were too many people in the turn lane. But what's crazy is I, I wasn't thinking about a shirt, but once I started thinking about a shirt, I couldn't stop thinking about a shirt. That's just the pull, man. And whether it's, you may not need a shirt, maybe it's a car, maybe it's a purse, maybe it's a new hairdo, maybe it's cosmetic surgery, maybe it's this, that, or the other. I mean, there's just something out there. And the question is, aren't, aren't there better rewards than that immediate reward? But we like, we like that quick fix. And there's more important things than physical things. Jesus is just saying, isn't life more than food and, and your body more than the clothing you put on it? What's crazy about the clothing is in their day, clothing wasn't for fashion. They typically, uh, somebody living in Jesus' day, an adult, would have two garments. Two garments. They would have an inner garment and they would have an outer garment. And they, they would have to keep that for years if they could. And so they would sometimes worry that, okay, what if it gets torn? Uh, what if it stops fitting? Uh, what, if, what if somebody steals it? Remember he had said earlier in the last message, actually, that, that moths can eat stuff. And, and he's just saying they're not permanent. Don't, don't treat them as if they're permanent in your mind and your heart. When we think about clothing, it's almost always, oh, man, I'm worried. Do I, do I have something to wear to dinner? Do I, does this dress make me look fat? By the way, if you're married husbands, no matter what she looks like in the dress, the answer is absolutely not. You're gorgeous. <laughs> Free marital counseling, amen. The, the, we don't worry over the protective need of clothing. They needed clothes for warmth and protection, and we worry over style. I'll never forget watching a talk show years and years ago, and the hostess of the show said to a guest as she sat down, she goes, oh, you've got last year's boots on. And I thought, what does last year's boots mean? And then I realized, oh, that's a thing among the elites, that like to wear last year's line of boots. That's just us. And Jesus says, you're actually made for more than that. Aim higher. And so go, go a little further with me, because he's arguing there from the greater to the lesser. And what he's saying is if, 
if the Father gives you the greater gift of eternal life itself, is, he, is it not reasonable to believe that he's going to give you everything you need, all these lesser things that are going to sustain that life? In other words, if he went to such extremes over your soul, over the most of who you are, the immaterial you, the spirit man, the spirit woman, if Jesus went to such lengths to secure that, don't you think that he's going to give you the material things that you need to make it from day to day in the life that he's assigned to you? And the answer, of course, is yes. So here he's going to humble us. Has anybody been humbled yet? Because if not, here it comes. Jesus illustrates the possibility of living worry-free. So he's about to tell us how you can live worry-free, free, 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 free. I mean, he's, he's a, that's the way we're like, come on, give us a secret. And he doesn't pull out this mega PowerPoint and these awesome, cool illustrations. He's like, oh, you, do you see the birds? He humbles us by saying, you're the student, the bird is the teacher. So watch this. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So he's hitting on another thing there. They're worried about how far they can make it. The span of, uh, the King James used to say, add another cubit to your stature. And I hated that because I'm a short guy and it was always like awkward preaching that because it reads like, you know, you know, how are you going to add, you know, six inches to your height? And so I like the ESV better. I think that's actually the better Greek translation. If it isn't, I'm still sticking with it. He's talking about adding an hour to your life. So he's touching another thing. They're worried about how long they're going to live. And then now they're worried also about what they're going to have as they live. Will it be enough from day to day? And Jesus wants to blow their minds. And he says, I'm going to give you something here. Do you see the birds? To me, that's humbling. I'm like, make it something. Get, talk about the lion or the tiger, something awesome, you know, but birds I don't know first of all birds have limited ability Jesus says they don't sow and they don't reap um, birds don't have the ability to plow an acre they don't have the ability to space the furrows they don't have the ability to at the proper distance from one another place the seeds in there they don't have that awareness. They don't have the ability to cover those seeds back up and then to tend to the shoots and the buds and the full and then to come and reap it. Birds don't have any ability to do that and yet birds have been around at least since the garden and amazingly, they haven't gone extinct and yet they have really very little ability to assure and guarantee their own continuance. And Jesus says, yeah, I want you to learn from them. They don't have a lot of ability and by application um, Jesus wants you to acknowledge about yourself that you really don't have the ability to sustain yourself during your entire life but we live like it's all on us and and to the furthest extent what he's dealing with here we sometimes obsess and worry and fear like it's all on us but birds also have limited foresight he says they those birds they don't gather everything into the barn the birds aren't looking out four seasons from now wondering if drought might happen and they're, guys, come on, tweet, tweet, get it all in the barn. We got to make sure we got enough in case something bad happens. There's, there's zero foresight with birds. You know what birds do? Birds are primarily going to wake up and eat what they find that day. Daily bread. And Jesus says, y'all can learn from them. 
y'all can learn from them. And I, th I think ultimately this is his point, birds are well taken care of. He says, your heavenly father feedeth them. King James, feedeth them. He feed, your heavenly father feeds every day the birds that have limited ability and limited foresight. They are well taken care of. And then Jesus brings home the encouraging hammer blow. He, he says this, the birds have limited value. Now, if you're a nature lover and you're, you know, you're a bird hugger or whatever, don't get upset with me. This is Jesus talking. He said this. I'm just, I'm the messenger. He says, aren't you the children of God better than the birds? And what he means is, don't you realize that you're way more important to the Father than the birds are? And it's, 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 a, it's a humbling teaching, but it's so simple that he wants us actually to approach it simply. Some of you have your inner lawyer protesting right now. I object. I object. Our lives aren't as simple as the birds. Maybe our lives externally aren't as simple as the birds, but our trust is to be as simple as the birds. They don't even know to trust. Listen, I mean, go find a flock of birds. You're not going to find a single one of them that has heart arrhythmia and high blood pressure because they're stressed out. It's just not the way they roll. They fly around, they look for something to eat, and they find it. And then they sing. That's the life, man. I'm starting to, I wish I could be a bird for a week. That'd be awesome. You could fly, eat what you want, sing. All joking aside, though, he's, he's actually making a point here. He's saying the birds are worry-free. And he's saying, I want you to learn some things from them. You're not supposed to have it all together, my friend. I don't know who told you that you were the one who was supposed to have it all together, that you were the one who was supposed to have, uh, you know, level 11 ability when everybody else at best taps out at level 10, but you, you're, you're level 11 material. That's, that's not from the Lord. You're, you're not supposed to be able to predict, anticipate, and control every single thing that's coming your way. If, if you could do that, you would not need him. And he wants you to know that you need him every day. And even in the things that we're so used to handling on our own, he wants us to slow down and just recognize that even those things, apart from his grace and apart from his provision and apart from his kindness, we couldn't even handle that stuff. And so he's not talking about us entering into a slacker mindset where we don't try, we don't persevere, we don't engage. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I want you to live your life intentionally in the kingdom according to the leadership that my father gives you through the holy spirit and through the word of god i want you to live that way but i don't want you to worry over it because that's beneath you that's literally what the son of god is teaching us here and so he moves from the food issue with the birds to the clothing issue with the fields so he says in verse 28 consider the lilies of the field note how they grow and he says, let me tell you what they don't do. They don't toil or spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much or will he not much more clothe you? Okay, same illustration, a slightly different nuance. He's saying, I don't want you worrying over whether or not your garments are going to last your protective covering. And, and, and honestly, there were some in that day that would be wealthy and they could dress in a way that would 
convey prominence and nice attire. It's, it's, it's not altogether different, but most of the people were just happy to have something off the rack, so to speak, that just, just they could wear it and it would last. And so that propensity to worry that they were going to be without that clothing because it took a lot to make one, it took a lot to buy one, and, and so they could obsess. What if my clothes run out? What if I don't have my covering? How am I going to be warm? How am I going to be modest? How am I going to be covered and protected? And Jesus blows a whistle, calls time out, and he says, check out the fields. And so the field that he's picturing is, you can picture a, a, like a rolling meadow, and th- when it says lilies, it's actually speaking of a floral genus that, that is like wild flowers. I used to live on Old Peachtree Road right down the street from here. And if you're going up 20 and take a ride on Old Peachtree, I don't, I'm assuming they still do it. There's a, a house on the left on Old Peachtree, and a couple of times every year, their front yard comes alive overnight with these tall and robust yellow wildflowers. And I, I don't guess they're of great value, but they're amazing because they spring up out of nowhere. They're bright, they're yellow, they're everywhere. And I used to love driving by there because I'd always think of this. I'd think to myself, yeah, Jesus wasn't playing around. These, these, these fields, these hills, they just sprout up and they're beautiful to look at. And it's as if, the metaphor is, is that the ground is covered with the grass and it's covered with these flowers. And he's talking about our covering, our shelter, our, our clothing. So there's no anxiety for the fields. He says they don't toil and they don't spin. In other words, I know this is a little silly, but Jesus is giving the illustration here. I'm just kind of amplifying. You don't see a a hillside just kind of spread out saying, got to produce some flowers. (sighs) I just got to get some grass popping out of me. I got to make it happen. Boom, something comes up. Good, there's one, got to keep doing it. And then that's not how it works. I know that's stupid, but that's the way we are. We're stupid when we think we've got to produce all the stuff that we want to produce in life. And so we toil and we spin. And the spinning, he's actually talking about a weaving that they would do to make clothing. But he's saying, yeah, the hills don't go after it with all their skill and all their precision and all their ability. And they don't have anxiety. They don't toil over it. Does it sound irreligious to say... Um, hey, take it easy, relax, exhale, chill, everything going to be iry. You know, and, and there, there's just something in us that feels like, oh, I, 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 can't, I can't do that because we're responsible Christians and we're supposed to have it together and we're supposed to stay on top of things and we're supposed to map things out and, and listen, if, if I'm going to have a covering, if I'm going to have what I need, bless God, i got to make things happen because we all know the Bible says the, the victory comes to those that hustle. Which, of course, it doesn't say. Now, again, Jesus is not an advocate for us being slackers and sitting around and you know, letting other people carry our genuine, legitimate responsibilities. He's not advocating that. But what he's doing is he is refuting the idea that it's actually spiritual and kingdom worthy to be so caught up in your ability to make things happen or maintain things or promote things or advance things. And he's just saying, no, 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 no. That is not my will for you. You're not to live like that. 
Um, for those of you that are high-end achievers and type A personalities, and you are wired by God to get things done, but I'm going to just go ahead and tell you, you're not wired by God to get everything done. You're only wired by God to get done what he wants you to get done. And when you find yourself stressing and flipping out and toiling and spinning and, you know, just in anxiety over stuff, it's because your mind has gone somewhere and gotten apart from where the Lord is. You're, you're engaging in something that's not in your assigned territory. So he's told us to look at the birds and look at the fields and to learn from them. You know, that's, that's not very flattering, but it is what Jesus said. And he, he says... The fields aren't lacking anything. He says, Solomon in all his glory, Solomon was loaded. He had tons of money, obviously, according to Jesus, uh, an expansive wardrobe. He said, even in all of his glory, Solomon wasn't arrayed like these hills. He said, the, the father decorates the artistry of the hills, and they're beautiful to look at. And he said, what the father does by the natural process that he initiates, he facilitates, and he consummates, the father can bring to pass all of this. Solomon's wardrobe didn't hold a candle. And so he's going back to their thinking. They're thinking, oh, okay, I'm not supposed to be like Solomon. I'm supposed to be yielded and abiding just like a gentle hillside that's displaying the glory of God in the budding of the flowers. And so he, he tells them again, he says, Shall, shall the Father not much more clothe you? I, I know it's repetitive, but it needs to be because we are amnesiacs. So he's saying, you're better than anything in nature because I don't have a relationship with nature. I don't have a covenantal relationship with nature. I'm the creator of nature, and nature can bring me glory, but not because it wills to bring me glory. It's my glory embedded in it. I put it there. But on the other hand, my child, you can bring me glory with your will. You are the only creatures on earth that can sing to my glory, pray to my glory, proclaim to my glory, abide and rest for my glory, be sacrificial for my glory. He's saying you're more important to me than the natural order. There is a side thing I could run here. Listen, I, I love planet earth. I'm grateful to be here. There's probably not a better planet for me, that we're here on planet Earth. But I do want to remind you that massive upheaval, ecological, celestial, terrestrial upheaval is going to find planet Earth during the tribulation. And all the trees that we are, you know, living our lives to save. I hate to tell you, but the end of that story has already been written doesn't mean we should be irresponsible but i want to just say this this i'm just going to say this i'm i'm baffled that the same people that want to save the trees have no regard for the most innocent of human life and and i just i don't get it i'm, I'm not being political here i'm just like jesus says that human beings and then even more intimately redeemed human beings are more important than birds and the hillsides. And what he's trying to convey to, to me and to you is, hey, son, daughter, if I take care of the birds that have less importance than you, I take care of the fields that have less importance than you, 
can you trust me that I really love you and I've got you? I, I am going to take care of everything you need. And what that's supposed to do is it's supposed to awaken a level of trust in us that sometimes eludes us. So the last couple of verses, Jesus is going to diagnose, he's going to connect freedom from worry to a growing faith. The antidote to worry is faith. Not positive thinking, not ignoring reality. I'm not going to look over there, so I'm not intimidated, I'm not afraid. I'm not going to look, oh, I looked and now I'm afraid. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about burying your head in the sand. And it's not faith in faith. It's not just some empty optimism. Jesus is going to connect the freedom that we receive to, to never be worrying people again. He's going to connect it to our growing faith. And the first thing he's going to do is challenge us. And wants us to right here examine our faith. And look at what he says. Most church members would get offended if somebody said to this now. Most pastors would get offended. He looks at him and he's like, y'all are so prone to worry. Oh, you people of little faith. You know, it's not a condemnation, but it's, it's a clear diagnosis. He's like, the issue is not that your life is that hard. The issue is that your faith is so small. And so, automatically, a couple of things happen for me when I read this. I realize my circumstances don't have to change before I'm free from worry. My, my personality, my, my tendency maybe to worry about a certain thing. I don't have to wait for the magical zap from heaven to, to instantly deliver me from that. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Jeff, when you're worried about these three things, he convicted me of three things today. They're, they're silly things probably, so just make them whatever you, you, you might tend to worry about. These were my things. And it's just like, Jeff, you, you just don't trust me. I'm like, Jesus, of course I trust you. I'm living for you. I'm serving you. I'm, I'm going to preach on not worrying tonight. He's, he's chuckling. That's the way I hear him. He's like, you, you are. You're going to preach on this stuff, and you're stuck in three areas of it. I'm like, Please don't do that to me. <laughs> Be nice to me. And he is. He's being gentle. He's being kind. But the reality is, is that he's not content with me having three things that are kind of spinning in my life's orbit right now. He's not content with me just learning how to manage the worry while I carry on in the other areas of life where I'm strong. He wants, he wants to be invited in to, and that's why we did what we did earlier tonight. He wants to be invited into these areas of worries. He's like, child, l let me in on that. Why don't you let me get in there and talk to you about that thing? And it's not always easy dialogue when he wants to address the things that we don't have faith for. Um, some of you in, in, in the room right now, I just want to encourage you. You've got, you've, you're struggling to trust God with people in your life. That's not a prophetic word, by the way. That's just reasonable in a crowd even this size. You're just, you're just having trouble trusting God with people in, in your life. You you want more of God for them and more of God in them and more of God from them. And it feels like sometimes an empty well and a, a, a cold steel door. And you're like, what's, what's happening? And you're tempted to give up. And, and Jesus just says, oh, oh, you have little faith. You've forgotten how much I love that person that you're worried about. You've forgotten how much I've invested in that person that you're really thinking is never going to turn the corner. You actually think, oh, you have little faith that I've, I've just given up on them and I haven't. And so sometimes it's people, sometimes it's finances. Oh my goodness, we are experts at worrying over money. And listen, there's, there's a very practical antidote for that. 
live within your means, even if that means lowering your standard of living, downsizing, getting rid of stuff. You're not in competition with anybody. There's, there's not a place in heaven where you cross the finish line and everybody says, okay, who, who finished with the most stuff? It's never going to happen. But we live down here as if we are in some kind of competition. It's actually okay if you don't have material abundance. The Lord's not mad at you. There are some people in the kingdom that he does not intend to make materially abundant. And I know that flies in the face of a lot of modern prosperity gospel teaching. Here's my thing. Um, if, if that's true in the kingdom, it, it should have always been true. And if you just read your New Testament, you find out that most Christians were poor. And most Christians living today are poor. And so here's the deal. If it's a kingdom truth, it needs to preach as well in the streets of Calcutta as it does on Madison Avenue. And so we gotta, we've got to exit this, this false pull on us to say, we just got to have a little more. If you will live within your means, you'll be able to trust him to meet those means. If you're living beyond those means, that's why you're feeling the anxiety of having to make things happen all the time. And so what he's saying is like, oh, listen, if you just have faith to trust. And so we get to examine our faith. And then we have to exercise faith. Verse 31 and 32. So this is the second time he says, don't be anxious. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Do you hear the panic? What shall we drink? What are we going to wear? And Jesus just shot blocks us. For the unbeliever, the Gentiles, the unbelievers worry about all these things or seek all these things. He says, let the pagans obsess over that stuff. He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need those things. Right now, do you know that the Father knows exactly what you need? And he's going to give it to you. He's going to give you what you need. And I, I understand, maybe we've got some areas in our life that we've built up that are not within the realm of what we need, and we might fear losing those things. Don't fear losing those things. You know why? Because that's what's torturing your heart. Your need, your desire to keep a luxury because it feels like a need, is what's hurting your faith. We, 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 we have come to treat luxuries as felt needs, and Jesus is like, no, I'm actually calling you out of that. By the way, stuff isn't bad. I'm not, I'm not a hater. I, God bless you. If he has blessed you materially, hallelujah. And I hope that you understand the reason why he's done that is because he wants you to, be, you to be involved in kingdom building, his kingdom. And it doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. It doesn't mean, you know, you have to eat those ramen noodles and, and, and unless he's telling you to sell all of your goods and give to the poor, and he may do that. But he's not opposed to us enjoying some things. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, I think it was Thessalonica, and he says, God has given us uh, richly all things to enjoy. So he's not a killjoy up there saying, listen, if you're happy, you're not spiritual. Or if you go on a vacation, you're ungodly. Or if you bought something nice, you ought to feel condemned about it. That's not what I'm saying here. Well, what I'm saying is when we treat those things like necessities, when they're actually luxuries, and we feel about them that they're necessities, that's where worry is going to have an open door into our lives. And so he says, your father knows what you need. By the way, I like this too. He says, don't let your anxiety be spoken. And he get, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Are we going to have enough clothing for tomorrow? 
Now, we don't use those things very much. That's not our, our stuff. But we speak out our worries and our fears. And when we speak them, we hear them. When we hear them, they get layered again in our mind. So what we end up doing is we end up preaching doom over ourselves. I just don't know if we're going to make it. I, just, I don't see how this is ever going to come through. I'm just not sure that, that we have any legitimate right to believe that God could come through in a season like that. And all the, we're just... We're just and that's not faith, that's, that's anxiety, that's worry. And, and some people are professionals, by the way. Some people, by the way, if you're not willing to speak doom and gloom over your life, they'll do it for you. Be like, that. are you sure you're going to make it, make it, make it, make it? You know, and, and you've got people that want to talk you down from your faith because they'll say, well, you're not being realistic. You, you, all that, that's fine, we trust God, but again, the Bible says the, the victory is to those that hustle. Somebody actually told me that once, so I'm kind of picking on them, but they're gone. They've been gone for years, but somebody told me that. And, and, but it's always stuck. It's like, hustle? What translation is that, man? I mean, that's nowhere in the Bible. I don't care how you translate that thing. So, he, he, listen, I will just say this. Worriers tend to want to process their worry because they hate the ulcers, and if they don't say something, the ulcers are going to, they're going to get them. And so they end up speaking doom, and when you speak doom, you hear doom, and it just, it's, it's just like a, it's like one of those backyard fountains, and it just keeps re recycling the same water. So go to verse 33, because here's the antidote, and we're almost done. He says, instead of being anxious, instead of speaking anxiety and worry and fear, just let the pagans own that territory because they don't have a father in heaven. They've got a right to be worried. That's what he's saying in verse number 32. And then in verse 33, he says, instead of doing all that, seek first the kingdom of God, seek God's righteousness, and all the things that you're so prone to worry over are going to be added to you. He's literally saying, don't think about it. Don't give your mind overly to these things, but I do want you to give your mind overly to the kingdom of God. So he's saying, put on your eternal lens. Look at your life. Look at your resources. Look at your time. Look at your opportunity. Look at your gifts and abilities. Look at your relationship. Look at them through the lens of the kingdom, which is the whole subject matter of the Sermon on the Mount. So he always brings us back to the kingdom. And what happens is when we start seeking the kingdom first, not on Sundays. Yeah, thank you, Naomi. She's got me. It's not uh, seek the kingdom of God first on Sundays. Monday through Saturday, do your own thing. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek centrally the kingdom of God. It's not an up there kind of, well, I don't know how to do that practically. Yes, you do. And if you don't know tonight, you can know. What does it mean? It means Jesus is with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Live like that. And he's actually really, really good and awesome and everybody you know needs him. And even those that have him as Savior need him more as Lord. And so you're actually deposited on planet Earth in this generation to advance and reflect the kingdom to anybody that's watching. And he says, if you will get consumed with that, you will never be consumed by worry again. It doesn't mean we don't have concerns for things and people. It doesn't mean that we don't intercede and travail and pour our hearts out in our complaints. I'm not talking about a detached, aloof life. What I'm saying is this, Jesus invites us to seek the greatest thing with the greatest of our resources. And the greatest thing is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is like, don't worry about the food that's going inside of you. 
Start obsessing over righteousness being inside of you. Don't obsess over the clothes that are going to go over your body. Start obsessing about putting on that new man in your spirit, that new woman in your spirit. And so what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to give you something better to think about. Now, here's the deal. If we are prone to worry, it's a learned behavior. It is instinctual by the time you reach a certain age in life. It is part of your temperament. It may be part of your personality, but it doesn't have a throne from which it rules your life. And so you are able to unlearn everything that you have learned. You are able to unlearn. You can literally, and it starts out a little bit like this, because you feel that worry impulse. You see something or hear something, it triggers a worry in you. You have to know it right there. Up, oh, there it is. I just felt the worry crawl. It's starting to crawl around inside of me. There it is. It's worry. And you say to it, no. And it's not going to give up right away. It's still doing its little dance inside of your, your, your heart, your body, your mind, whatever. And you just say, no. And then what do you do? You seek first the kingdom of God, and you either open up your phone for a Bible app, or you open up your actual Bible if you have a paper Bible, and you start speaking truth into your life. And you can even say, worry, I'd like for you to take a seat. You're going to listen to me preach to you that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life and God is my Father and my Father has promised to give me every single thing that I need and all the things you want me to worry about worry, I'm going to tell you something. He's already told me those things are going to be mine. I'll have everything that I need. So worry, how about you sit down and shut up and stop speaking into my life? Now listen, you've got to get militant with it like that if you ever want to get free from it like that. And so you have to take ownership. It's, it's not a, a sign of maturity to say, God, just take worry away from me. God says, I never gave it to you. He's saying, if, if you will start speaking my truth over your worries, your worry will shrivel up and die. Every time we fertilize our worry by allowing it to roam free in our hearts, it grows stronger. And we have to starve our worries. And you can, I promise you. Listen, I'm going to close with this. My mom, raised me under a canopy of worry. She was a first-class worrier. She had a very unstable childhood, a rocky marriage to my dad, and by the time I was nine and they had split up, she was just trying to protect me, I think, and my sister from all of the hurts and the dangers and the boogeymans and the bad things and all of that. And I'll never forget being 12 years old and making the mistake of bringing a friend on vacation as a seventh grader and we were going to go to Panama City Beach, and we were pumped, man, 12 years old, Panama City Beach, and I went with my mom and my sister. I remember we got in the hotel room and put up all our stuff, threw in our bathing suit, and me and Jason are running down to the beach, and I hear my mom say, don't go in above your knees. To a 12-year-old boy, she might as well just thrown a bucket of shame on me. My friends look at me like, what did she just say? I think she said, don't go in above, you know, because great whites are going to consume you if you get 18 inches into the water. But the point being is that is a, that's a kind of a, a snapshot of what I was raised under. And so guess what I learned how to do? I learned how to see danger instead of opportunity. I learned how to see consequences that may or may not happen that kind of shut me down in taking risks as an unsaved young man. And ultimately, it came to the point where I had to get not only saved, but I had to go through deliverance 
Yes, straight up charismatic Pentecostal shabadabadoo deliverance on my soul because I had been hardwired by life to worry. And the things that I've been living for the last probably 10 years are as a result of no longer being a slave to worry. You see, you don't merge a Baptist church with an Assemblies of God church after you've already lost a third of your congregation. You don't do that motivated by worry. What happened? Well, worry wasn't part of the equation. I heard God speak, and I didn't say, oh, that sounds risky. I better play it safe. I said, I better obey the Lord because that's the safest place I can be. So this is what I'm talking about. I'm not the hero of my own story. I can promise you this. I'm just giving you a testimony. The, the things that we're prone to worry about are already ours. He's already given you everything you need. And if you, you can be content with living with what you need, this is his last statement to us in verse 34. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Why, Jesus? Because tomorrow's got enough anxiety on its own. That's a paraphrase there. He says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Worrying about what's coming your way tomorrow, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. There's no power in it. It doesn't add anything. It actually subtracts. It takes away. You lose the awareness of God with you, God in you, God for you in the present moment. You lose that awareness when your mind's already overshooting this 24-hour period and you're obsessing over what might or might not happen tomorrow. Because let me tell you, God's not doing anything yesterday and he's not doing anything tomorrow yet. He wants to meet you in today and he wants to look you straight in the eye spiritually and say, this has been an awesome day that we've spent together. I'd love to do it with you again tomorrow. If you'll show up and you'll seek me, my kingdom and my righteousness, I'm going to give you everything that you need tomorrow. So he's saying, you want to do tomorrow together? You want to do it again? And the answer of faith is, yes, Lord. I want to do my tomorrows with you. Thank you for being with me today. We stand to our feet.